And welcome to what I missed last week. I assume we actually got through Romans 8 because I didn't actually get a chance to hear. Yes, we end. did. That was probably because you were down by at least 50%, if not more. Uh, you were able to clearly, concisely, lucidly delve through the rest of Romans 8, which means I've missed some of my favorite sections of Romans. But we are in Romans 9 this evening. So, you, listen, listen to the listen to it, man. It was a, yeah, a great discussion. To. It was one. It's wonderful to listen to. I um, I listen to a lot of podcasts, so it shouldn't be that hard for me to listen to this. Just usually, the things I've been recorded recently and made in a podcast, I just don't listen to it because I don't like listening to hear myself because you know that dissonance of like you hear yourself recorded, you're just like, oh, that's not what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> i sound different so anyways before i talk too much let's start with prayer and then reed can start us on romans 9 in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit <clears throat> illumine our hearts O master who love us mankind with the pure light of thy divine knowledge open the eyes of our mind to the understanding of your gospel teachings and plant also in us the fear of your blessed commandments that trampling down all carnal desires when we enter upon a spiritual manner of living, both thinking and doing such things as well-pleasing to you. For you are the illumination of our souls and bodies of Christ our God, and to you do we ascribe glory, together with your fathers from everlasting, your all-holy good and life-creating spirit, now and ever and into ages of ages. Amen. 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 I love that prayer. It just one. hits all the right notes, and every time I, you know... We just did it this evening because we had a gospel reading for the during the pre-sanctified. But anyways, read, lead, please, and I'll shut up. <laughs> okay. Well, let's. Um, we're in Romans nine tonight, and I want to give a little bit of a lead into this because Saint John's take on this is not one I would have ever come to on my own. And to make sense of it, you have to understand how he reads the end of Romans 8. Uh, let me go ahead and share my screen here. Share screen. And the one that I want to share is that one. Everyone seen Romans 8 now? Yes, no? Yes, okay. Um, so, um, in verse 35, very familiar passage, the apostle Paul begins, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And he continues on there in the last two verses, for I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And what you have to understand here is where Chrysostom sees the phrase, the love of God here, or the love of Christ, he always takes that to mean our love for Christ, not his love for us. Uh, just as I mentioned last time, when we talk about the love of money, we don't mean how much money loves us. Um, 
And so what the apostle... Hold on a second. What did you... So you said in verse 35, for example, when it says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Chrysostom does not read that as what shall separate us from Christ's love for us, but what shall separate us from our love for, for Christ? Exactly. Well, yeah. Chrysostom. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. I really do have to listen <laughs> last week. Yeah, I'm telling you, you missed it, Father. You missed it. I, yeah, I, I was very impressed by that too when I heard that. Yeah, so it's... So sort of more but, but, like, let me just throw in after I heard it and after I finished listening to it, I spent some time looking at it and it makes a lot more sense in the context. Don't you think, Reed? I, it makes a lot more sense in the context if you look at everything else. I mean, well, you know, yeah, the rhetorical to... questions make more sense at the beginning of that little, like, if God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare us. Yeah, that makes. All right. I need to. I just need to set a time and just read through all of Chrysostom on <laughs> Romans. That is definitely what I'm coming to conclusion of. Right, and so uh, yeah, I mean everyone should. Right, it's just it's endless depths of riches. But yeah, so 35 is essentially who shall separate us from loving Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or fan? It's like none of these things are are worthy of diminishing our love for him. And so it is with that understanding of the end of Romans 8. Oh, can I just say one more thing? Sure. Oh, you flipped it. Sorry, I'll go back. Okay. Uh, if I can get to the place where I can go back. There we go. Okay. When I said it, makes sense in context because then that verse 36 says as it is written for your sake we are killed all day long we are accounted as sheep for the slaughter you see what i'm saying that makes more sense if he's talking about our love for christ than he is talking about christ's life for us because mm -hmm. for your sake, Christ's sake, we are killed all day long. For Christ's sake, we are counted as sheep for the slaughter. I, yeah, I do see what you're saying. That's good. So, so I looked at that after what you said, Rhea, and went, well, yeah. So he must be saying, who shall separate us from our love mm -hmm. of Christ? So... St. John picks up with that thought here in chapter 9 and sees it as a continuation of those thoughts from the end of chapter 8. Um, that as the Apostle Paul has been declaring the intense depths of his love for Christ, he is now going to heighten that declaration. And maybe I should mention his background. This is a really interesting homily of St. John's because, as you probably know, he seems to follow very much the pattern of the Apostle Paul, where he has a section of doctrine talking about the passage that he's considering, and then a passage of applying it, an exhortation, saying, what do you do with this? And in this case, he does a homily that exactly covers our chapter 9 as being a matter of you know, sort of doctrinal confusion that needs to be addressed. 
and omits altogether to discuss its applications. And in fact, he says explicitly at the end, I'm not going to go on and talk about how we might apply this like I usually do. His, his phrasing is interesting. He says, I don't want to leave a fresh indistinctness on your memory. I don't want to make things newly unclear to you. Uh, so he just cuts it off. I, I thought I sh that's a phrase I should just adopt and use with some frequency um, in teaching, uh, in teaching math. But um, in any case, he picks up here um, as a continuation of Paul's declaration of his love for Christ. And so in particular, I've always read the beginning of chapter nine, and uh, well, let me just say the background. I've always read the beginning of chapter nine as expressing Paul's deep love for his fellow Jews and his grief that they have not received the gospel. But Chrysostom doesn't take it that way at all. He takes it as the apostle Paul declaring his love for Christ and how grieved he is that the unbelief of the Jews is leading them to blaspheme Christ. And I'll elaborate on that some more, but could I ask someone to read for us the first five, five verses of chapter nine? I'll do that. Thank you. I tell the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh, who are Israelites, to whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises, of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, all the eternally blessed God. Amen. Thank you. So, the way St. John takes this, verse 1 is essentially Paul, who has already expressed his love for Christ in such exorbitant terms, extravagant terms, is going to go even farther. And so he begins by reassuring his audience, I really am telling the truth, however extreme this may sound. Um, and then he comments on how Paul who has just talked about how nothing can separate him from loving Christ, now expresses his wish to be separated from Christ. He says, now, why would he do this? And it's interesting, first of all, this word um, accursed in verse three is the word anathema, um, which is used in two senses, the one that we often think of, of uh, cutting off someone who is rejected uh, from the faith. So, uh, but it has the other meaning of being set apart, cut off from common uses to be set aside for holiness. Um, and I, I think that's very much what the Old Testament meaning is uh, when, you know, in the law, when something was set apart as holy to God, it was anathema. It was cut off from common use. And so Chrysostom takes some time explaining that this is anathema in the other sense of uh, being rejected uh, and forsaken by God. Um, but his reason for wanting to be separated is 
because of, because of his love for Christ, he says, be, uh, because the Jews having received such blessings and promises and now being cast out in unbelief with the Gentiles now taking their place without having received any of those wonderful preparations, the Jews are blaspheming, are blaspheming God as though his promises had proved unreliable. And Paul is grieved that his beloved God is being so maligned and would gladly accept separation from God if thereby the Jews would believe and quit slandering God. So I will throw that out for your thoughts and comments. And if there are none, I'll go on. Well, it seems to me it's going both ways. Okay. That that it's breaking his heart. He feels bad for it. I hate to say he feels bad for Christ, but I can't. I, I can't come up with good words. But that, but but he feels bad for Christ, and he feels bad for the Jews. Mm -hmm. It breaks his heart on behalf of Christ that the Jews are rejecting him. Mm -hmm. Okay, it breaks his half on behalf of the Jews that they're rejecting Christ. The whole thing's just a tragedy to him, and it's such a horrible tragedy that he wishes that he could be accursed from Christ for the sake of his brethren, for his countrymen. Mm-hmm. Well, and later on, Chrysostom does make the comment that Paul is also here making it clear that he does love his fellow Jews and the criticisms that he's bringing against them, that it's not out of animosity. Um, so partly he's trying to win over his hearers so that they will hear his message. But one of the points Chrysostom makes here is that He's Paul speaking the truth in love. Yeah. Yeah. But also just being a good rhetorician. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. D don't alienate your audience. Um, but also, Paul being an apostle would not love the Gentiles less than the Jews. And so anything that he would say about, you know, he would be saying here out of love for the Jews, he might just as well say about the Gentiles because he would want them to be saved just as much. And this is part of why Chrysostom argues that this is not about his love for the Jews or the Gentiles. It's about his love for Christ. So, yeah, certainly an interesting thought. So he picks up uh, then with verse six and um, this is kind of a section. So could I ask someone to read for us verses 6 through 13, please? I can. Thank you. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of, the, of promise. 
at this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And not only this, but when Rebecca also had conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Thank you. So, in verse 6, Paul dismisses out of hand the idea that God's promise may have failed, that what he said had not produced the proper result, um, which evidently is the argument that some of the Jews were making. And um, so the, the question, and he kind of points at the direction he's going to go with this statement, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel. And a little later, uh, St. John looks at this and says, now he doesn't use the name Jacob here, but Israel. Israel was given to, as the name to Jacob, after he had wrestled with God, after he had been faithful, after he had shown his virtue, after he had received the gift and the promise from God. And so as we begin to discuss this question of, well, who is the seed of Abraham that the answer is going to lie, for instance, in what was it that made Israel Israel instead of just Jacob? And so, you know, he takes up this question, well, they're not, they're, they're not all children because they're the seed of Abraham, but in Isaac, your seed shall be called. And, you know, some of us are probably hearing uh, echoes of Galatians here, which covers a lot of the same territory. And so Chrysostom says, well, what does it mean? It's only in Isaac that his seed is. And his answer is, it means that those, it means those who are born as Isaac was, not according to the law of nature, not according to the power of the flesh, but according to the power of the promise. And note here that it doesn't say the children of Abraham, but in fact, it calls these the children of God in verse 8. So it's the argument that we also see in Galatians that the children of Abraham are the ones who are born as Isaac was as the result of promise, not as the result of just natural generation. And um, Chrysostom goes on and says, now, what's the promise? And he says, well, it's from Genesis. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. And he says, it was this promise and the words of God that begot Isaac. And in the same way, God generates us by the word and promise of God. And, and here I, I quote, he says, thus are we also gendered by the words of God, since in the pool of water, that is in baptism, it is the words of God which generate and fashion us. For it is by being baptized into the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost that we are gendered. And this birth is not of nature, but of the promise of God. For as after first foretelling the birth of Isaac, he, also, he then accomplished it. So ours also he had announced before, many ages ago by all the prophets, and afterwards brought it to pass.
So he's saying here that Isaac was born of the promise of God. He was begotten, if you will, by the words of God and the promise of God. And those who have come to Christ in baptism, the same is true of them. And so these are the true seed of Abraham. That seems to make the first few chapters of Romans uh, connect with this much easier. What is faith but faith of the God who can speak existence, who can speak life into death? Mm -hmm. That's the kind of faith that Abraham had. So here we are again, back to Abraham. Yes, that's good, yeah. The God who calls things that are not as though they were. I keep thinking of uh, who was it that said that that that. Uh, I hate to show my ignorance. God could raise up children of Abraham from these very stones. Is that John the Baptist? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I, I, I get kind of a sense of that here too. Am I? way off track on that or that sounds in line to me yeah it does okay yeah that seems very much it's like you know when you're talking he's saying to the, his audience there you're talking about being children of abraham but you're just counting according to the flesh that's not how god counts right he can raise up children out of these stones right So, um, but the but the child, but nevertheless, the children of Abraham are the seed, right? And if I may, let me. So, so, so I, I'm ahead. sorry. No, no, no. Go ahead, please. So that seems to suggest to me that he's also saying that that doesn't mean that 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 being a son of Abraham by the flesh is meaningless. It's not utterly meaningless, right? But it means that 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 is the that 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 the, the children of the Abraham by flesh are the seed from which God makes authentic, if for lack of a better word, children of of Abraham. That what is now? That that that. Uh, uh, With children of the Abraham by flesh, okay. Mm -hmm. Verse eight that 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 is those who are the children of the flesh; these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. Right. For this is the word of the promise: at this at this time I will come, and Sarah shall have a son. Well, I should have gone back to six, but it's not the word of God has taken no effect. Uh, but but for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac, your seed shall be called. So being of the flesh of Abraham is not sufficient, but that doesn't mean it's meaningless because in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Mm-hmm. 
Mm -hmm. so that, that is so that these are the children of the flesh, that they're not automatically the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed from which, he doesn't say it, from which the children of God will come forth. For this is the word of the promise, this forth I will come and Sarah will have a son. Did that make sense what I just said? Yeah, I think so. Well, and I mean, isn't that um, how Romans 3 begins? What advantage is there in being a Jew or what value is there in circumcision much in every way? Yes, 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 yes. But it's not sufficient. Right. I think that's his big point. That is that's that is not that is not sufficient. Well, and what John Chrysostom says in various places is when the Apostle Paul speaks of the blessings of the Jews, he speaks about what they've been given, not the virtues they've obtained. And yeah, you know, same way here, they received these wonderful promises and blessings, but you know, how did they respond? God has chosen, God chose to work through the Jews, but that doesn't mean that the Jews accepted God working through them and accomplished what God intended. <coughs> yes. <coughs> so other thoughts before we push on a little farther? And, um, you know, sort of in some basic sense, you, you sort of hear the apostle um, addressing arguments from the Jews. It's like, well, okay, um, they're saying, no, no, it's the, it's the children of Abraham. And what he's saying here is, well, but it's not the children of Hagar. It's not the children of Keturah. And so one of the Jews says, yes, yes, yes. But they were, you know, it was the slave woman. It was the other wife. It, you know, it's not, you know, it depends on the mother. And so he goes on and says, well, what about, you know, Isaac and Rebecca? Okay. Jacob and Esau, they had not only Isaac for their father, but they both had Rebecca for their mother. In fact, they were twins. And yet, the children of Edom, the children of Esau are, you know, the Jews would not say that they were the seed of Abraham, only those who came from Jacob. And so what um, Chrysostom sees the Apostle Paul doing here is not explaining at all, just saying, well, look, if you're a Jew saying you're a child of Abraham, you know, it's, it's only the children of Abraham. Notice that the, a lot of these children of Abraham, you don't consider children of Abraham. You don't consider the, the children of Hagar, children of Abraham, or the children of Keturah, or the children of Esau. And so if you can explain why they aren't children of Abraham, then you can start talking about why the, why the Gentiles can't be children of Abraham and why you must be. Um, and Chrysostom says, you know, essentially, Paul argues this way other places, like back in Romans 5, where he's talking about um, 
you know, in Christ, all are made alive and have received all of these blessings because of the righteousness of the one man, the many are made righteous. And he's saying, well, the Jews are saying, how can that be? Where's the justice in that? And Paul says, well, where's the justice in that by the sin of the one man, Adam, all were made sinners. Okay. If you can't explain that one, at least recognize that you believe the truth of it. And how much more fitting is it that the righteousness of one man and that man being God should bring life to all? So it's the same argument here. Well, if you can recognize that all of these descendants of Abraham aren't called the seed of Abraham, then why should it surprise you if maybe what it was that makes one the seed of Abraham is not just fleshly birth? Um, and if anyone wants to comment on that, I would I'll leave the floor open here for a minute, because otherwise, otherwise I'm about to read some long quotes from Chrysostom. Okay, so um, he says the subject in question was an important one. Hence, he turns to several arguments and endeavors by all means to solve the difficulty. For it, if it was at once strange and new for them to be the true seed of promise, that is for the Gentiles be, to be the true seed of promise. Um, okay, I think I cut and pasted wrong. But anyway, after they, I guess the Jews were cast out after so many great promises, it is much more strange that we, the Gentiles even, should come into their good things, who did not expect anything of the kind. And the case was the same as if a king's son, who had promises made him that he should succeed to the power he had, were to be cast into the level of disreputable men, and in his place a condemned man, and one laden with evils unnumbered, after being taken out of prison, were to come into the power which properly was the others. So you get the picture, right? The king's son is treated as disreputable and a prisoner guilty of many crimes is suddenly given the position of the king's son. For he means, what have you to say? That the son is unworthy? Well, but so is this man unworthy. So it's kind of like, well, if the Jews were cast out, why bring the Gentiles in? They weren't any better. Um, and much more so. Hence, he ought either to have been punished along with the former or to have been honored along with him. You know, at the very least, they should be treated the same. Now, it was something of this sort which befell the Jews and the Gentiles, or something far more strange than this. Now that all were unworthy, he is shown above where he says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, going back to Romans 3. But the new thing is that when all were unworthy, the Gentiles were saved alone. And beside, and beside this, there is another difficulty that someone may start. He says, if God had no intention of fulfilling the promises to them, why make them at all? For men who know not the future and are many times deceived do promise even the undeserving things that they shall have, uh, even the undeserving that they shall have their largesses. But he who knows beforehand things to come as well as things present and has a clear knowledge 
that they will make themselves undeserving of the promises and therefore will not receive any of the things specified, why should he promise at all? Now, what is Paul's way of meeting all this? It is by showing what the Israel is to whom he made the promise. For when this has been shown, there is at the same time demonstrated the fact that the promises were all fulfilled. <clears throat> now, the translation's awkward, but to sum that up, the point is, <clears throat> why is it that the Gentiles, you know, if, if the promise was really to the Jews after the flesh, how is it that the Jews could be rejected and the Gentiles could be saved? Because the Gentiles certainly weren't better than the Jews. You know, at the very least, they should either both be honored or both be rejected. And then um, the second question is, if in fact God knew the Jews weren't going to be saved, why did he make the promises to them to start with? And the way Chrysostom reads this is to say, the Israel whom God was making the promises to was not the Israel after the flesh, not the fleshly descendants of Abraham, but someone else. And to those to whom this promise was actually made, it was fulfilled and is fulfilled. Does that make sense? And I take it those would be the spiritual children of Abraham. Right, the children of promise. Which promise. again is, yeah, the children who were begotten not by the flesh, but by the promise, by the word of God. Oh, promise. I thought you said Thomas. I... Oh. <laughs> you don't know about little old Thomas hanging out with Abraham, do you? Uh, how did Thomas get in here, huh? Ah, okay. Children of the children of the promise. Children of the promise, which I just yeah okay. I, I mean I, I mean is I mean I, I mean is that appropriate read to, to to call those the spiritual children or? It sounds good to me, but you know, <laughs> what do I know? Well, that's the way I'm thinking of it. I just want to be sure that I'm saying so that it conforms with Chrysostom and doesn't go off on my own well and certainly in the sense that flesh is sometimes sort of put in not exactly opposition but contrast to flesh then uh, yeah uh, uh. you know i want to say that carefully but um you know i don't want to i i gotta be i gotta be careful that i don't, I don't that i don't say something manichaean i think is what you're <laughs> Yes. Well, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not disagreeing with you at all. I'm, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you that certainly the Apostle Paul talks about, you know, the law is, you know, the law is spiritual. You know, uh, you know, things are not fleshly; they're spiritual. We don't want to live according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's perfectly legitimate. And in that sense, I, I could see it being, yeah, you know, the spiritual children of Abraham, not those according to the flesh even if that's not exactly the way that it's phrased here. So let me read a little more Chrysostom unless someone's about to jump in. He says, you see how this happens not in Abraham's case only, but also in that of his son himself and how it is faith and virtue in all cases that is conspicuous 
and gives the real relationship its character. For hence we learn that it is not only from the manner of birth, but owing to their being worthy of the father's virtue, that the children are called children of him. Okay, and this is an idea we've seen from Paul earlier in Romans, um, that it is those who are of the faith of Abraham who are truly Abraham's children. And that's Romans 4 again. And he goes on and says, yet all, he says, have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3. Now, if all have sinned, how some to be saved and some to perish? It is because all were not minded to come to him, since for his part, all were saved, for all were called. So from God's point of view, he was saving all, but there were, you know, the, the ones who refused to come, that's how they were not saved. Okay. Then maybe we should move on a little further because we're getting into some of, I mean, this is a chapter that is very fond, uh, that is very um, important to the Calvinists, right? Um, you know, talking about uh, God's purpose in election would stand not of works, but of him who calls. Um, you know, before they were born, it was said to uh, Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Jacob, I loved Esau, I hated, and has taken um, by folks of a Calvinist bent to say, okay, this is God's utter sovereignty. He just decrees who will be saved and who is lost. Um, and I mean, there was a large part of my life when I would have read it that way. And trying to sum up Chrysostom's argument about what the Apostle Paul is actually saying here, at one point he says, what Paul aimed at was to show that God only knows who is worthy and no man knows who is worthy. But God's sentence sometimes looks strange to men, for he knows the secrets of the hearts, knowing who deserves, a, who deserves a crown and who deserves punishment and vengeance. Thus, many whom men honor as good, he convicts and punishes, and those suspected to be bad, he crowns after showing it not to be so. He renders the sentence not after the judgment of us slaves, but according to his own keen and uncorrupt decision, not having to wait on men's actions to tell who is wicked and who is good. So essentially saying that God made these statements about Jacob and Esau and about whomever else, not out of sovereign determination, but out of foreknowledge. And he says more about this a little later, says, for if in the case of these arts which are perishable, and indeed in other matters, those that are good judges do not use the grounds on which, well, okay, let me paraphrase this because the translation is so awkward. But he uses, for instance, the example of horse trainers picking out horses for the race. And we talked about this a little bit in Romans 8. He says, the horse trainer can tell what to look for to know which horse is going to be good to train and will be responsive to the training and which one won't. And the basis on which he makes those judgments are not obvious to the layman. But because of that, we don't, you know, the, the layman looks at the horse trainer and thinks, how silly, he's choosing horses that obviously aren't good, 
But other people who are a little wiser laugh at the layman and say, he's a horse trainer. He knows what he's doing. He knows what to look for, and you don't. And he says, it's very much the same way with God, who not only being infinitely wise, but also having perfect foreknowledge, knows who's going to respond to him and who doesn't and who's not going to, and announces ahead of time the judgments based on that without having to wait for them actually to demonstrate them by their works. And so he says, whence also he says, Jacob, I, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, that it was with justice you indeed know from the result, but God knew it even before the result, showed it clearly. Or he knew it clearly even before the result, before the works. For it is not a mere exhibition of works that God searches after, but a nobleness of choice and, a, and an obedient temper besides. Thoughts, comments, questions? So uh, he goes on, picking up at verse 14. Um, would someone be so kind to read for us? Um, hmm. 14 through 24, please. I can. <laughs> Thank you. 14 through 24? Yes, please. What shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I have compassion. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. For the scripture says to the Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whom he wills, and and whom he wills, he hardens. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay for the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. Thank you. So, um, verse 14, he says, obviously, there is no unrighteousness with God. So in choosing the Gentiles and uh, you know, letting the, the Jews pull themselves away, there's no unrighteousness with God. And then verse 15, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Chrysostom takes the context of this, which is after the incident with the golden calf and says, all of them sinned with the golden calf, and yet some are going to receive mercy and some not. And essentially what God is saying is, Moses, I'm not going to tell you the basis on which I make that judgment. And Chrysostom says, 
you know, God knows the hearts. He knows what's going to become of these people and who will respond to him. And he doesn't even clue Moses in about how he makes these judgments. So we certainly shouldn't be questioning God about them. Um, and he kind of, Chrysostom kind of goes partway through this passage and then backs up and then redoes some of it. It makes it uh, a little bit contorted to try to work through it. Um, let me go down, though, to 20 and 21, and this may clear up a lot of it. It says, But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, Why have you made me like this? Does not the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? And here are a couple of readings from him, one of which I paraphrase. He says, Here it is not to do away with free will that he says this, but to show up to what point we ought to obey God. For in respect of calling God to account, we ought to be as little disposed to it as the clay is. And we said last week, uh, Chrysostom says almost nothing about free will in Romans 8, but here he addresses it quite directly. For he says, for we ought to abstain not from gainsaying or questioning only, but even from speaking or thinking of it at all. That is, we not even, ought not even to worry about how God makes his judgments. And to become like that lifeless matter which follows the potter's hands and lets itself be drawn about anywhere he may please. And this is the only point he applied the illustration to, not, that is, to any enunciation of the rule of life, but to the complete obedience and silence enforced upon us. And then he gives a principle for the reading of scripture. And this we ought to observe in all cases, that we are not to take the illustrations quite entire, but after selecting the good of them and that for which they were introduced to let the rest alone. So what he's saying here is that when the apostle Paul has the illustration of the potter and the clay, he's making one point, which is we ought not to be questioning God. We ought rather to be obeying him without questions. That this is not a general statement of life that we are to have no will, no free will. We are just, you know, fatalistically creatures of God's will. And that I think is a, a very interesting principle for reading scripture that you have to be careful about putting more into illustrations than they're actually meant to convey. Having the trajectory from where we've been, then these questions make more sense mm -hmm. of all of what's going on in 19 and 20 and 21. Mm -hmm. It's about Jews saying, well, what's wrong? Why, like, why, why are we, what's wrong with the way that we've kind of decided or, you know, why bring the Gentiles in and that that fits this rhetorical structure way better than and a random kind of abstract discussion about predestination. <laughs> yes. I can totally see it still. I can see it. it's almost like I have two tracks in my head where I can see how both work here. Yeah. But the one that seems to make the most sense over the whole trajectory of the letter and the way that he's been arguing and the themes that that 
Chrysostom brings up and illuminates that then you can see how it brings together more aspects that of the letter and it holds more coherent. It's more coherent altogether instead of like, here, let me kind of do this rambling abstract thing about predestination. Right. I think I'll stick with Chrysostom. Yep. Yes, it's all about the Jews and the Gentiles and explaining how it is that the Jews have come to occupy, occupy the place that, I mean, the Gentiles have come to occupy the place. Some of the Gentiles have come to occupy the place that some of the Jews have lost by unbelief. And Chrysostom says a little more, which I paraphrase here. He says, and when he says, hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor, he says, do not suppose that Paul says this to explain how God creates men, nor to imply a constraint of the will, but to illustrate the sovereignty and difference of disp dispensations. For if we do not take it in this way, many incongruities will result. I've often thought about that phrase. It's like, if you take it that God is just determining everyone you know, to be a vessel of wrath or a vessel of glory or mercy, then many incongruities result. All sorts of things all sorts of weird things start to happen in your reading of scripture if you take it that way. And he goes on and says, for if he were speaking about the will and those who are good or evil, it will be God who makes them this way and man will be free from all responsibility. Also, Paul will be at variance with himself as he always bestows chief honor upon free choice. All he wants to do here is to persuade the hearer to yield entirely to God and never to call God to account for anything. And he goes on, but you you kind of get the idea. So he talks about Pharaoh. Um, where is Pharaoh? Back up in verse 17. He says, Pharaoh was one to whom God had shown mercy after mercy, trying to call him to repentance. And since Pharaoh hardened himself and refused to respond to that mercy, then God made him an example that by his example, others might be called to repentance. So, um, so thus, in you know verses twenty two through twenty four, um, he talks about the the vessels of mercy and and vessels of uh, what is it wrath vessels of wrath. He says you know the phrase is prepared for destruction and prepared for glory, refer to God's foreknowledge, not as though He compelled men to be the one or the other. And expressions like vessels of mercy show that. Even though the good uh, man may make some small contributions in repentance, yet the greater part, really the whole, is of God. Otherwise, Paul would call them vessels of well-doings. Similarly, the phrase, not of him that wills or him that runs, uh, it doesn't deprive us of free will. It shows that our part is small and God's is great. 
and that everything depends on his grace. So this is not denying our free will and that we have something to do. It's just to say that what God does is so infinitely greater that there's no place for us to, you know, to uh, take credit for it, if you will. And at one point, what he says is, for it is binding on us to will and also to run. You know, he's re referring to where it says, uh, not by him who wills and not by him who runs. That's back, back up in 16, but of God who shows mercy. So he says, for it is, it is binding on us to will and also to run, but to confide not in our own labors, but in the love of God toward man. And so a lot of these things that we might easily hear as denying free will, Chrysostom reads as simply calling us to humility, that we need to exercise our will fully and work hard and yet understand everything is of God and of his grace. I'm afraid I'm going to have to run. Good to have you with us. Adios. Have a good week. We're getting close to the end. Oh, well. <laughs> when he hears the recording, he can find out we were close to the end. Um, any other thoughts or comments before we try to wrap it up here? Okay. Then let me just briefly talk about, uh, as Chrysostom reads it, the Apostle Paul here in verses 25 through 29, continuing to try to show to the Jews that it was not uh, somehow unrighteous, that the Gentiles were taking the place that the Jews believed to have been promised to them. He says, look, the prophets say this as well, because clearly, clearly where Hosea says, I will call them my people who are not my people. He's talking about the Gentiles. And the same way in verse 28, though the number of children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, the remnant, that is only the remnant, will be saved. Meaning, you know, even though there were lots who were called Israelites, very few of them were the true seed of Abraham who were saved. And the, the prophets had said this all along. Um, it's interesting in verse 28, it says, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And evidently, Chrysostom reads this text with the word work being changed to the word word. The Lord will make a short word upon the earth. Which, if I understood the notes in the text I was looking at, that's the literal meaning of the word that's translated work. Um, and Chrysostom understands this to be the word of faith very much like Paul will go on in Romans 10 talking about, you know, the word is close to you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. If you confess with your mouth, the Lord Jesus and so on. And that this is all about the ease of being saved by faith in comparison to the law. And so this is what makes it short is because it's easy. And so Chrysostom sees the apostle Paul has tried more and more to magnify the problem the way the Jews were stating it, and then finally to give the answer. 
So in 30 and 31, here's the real problem. The Gentiles didn't pursue righteousness and gained it. The Israelites pursued righteousness and didn't. But even here, he gives the hint, uh, hints at the solution. The Gentiles attained it by faith. The Israelites pursued it as if it were by law. And then finally, verse 32, what's the answer? Because the Israelites did not seek it by faith, but as, if it, but as it were by the works of the law. And yet the law didn't give righteousness. It, in fact, it only condemned those who tried to follow it, as the Jews themselves evidently already knew. And I think again of uh, Paul in Acts talking to some of the Jews about in Christ being able to be cleansed of all the things that they couldn't be cleansed from by the law. And so finally, he says in verse 33, it's a faith that the boldness comes, that the stumbling in verse 33, the stumbling stone is disbelieving. Some will believe and some will stumble, but the stumbling comes of not taking heed. And he says of gaping after other things. And it's a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, not from its own nature, but because of the character and the end of those who don't believe. And I was trying to get us done by 9.30 since we started by about 8.30. So that finishes my notes. <laughs> but I would love to have anyone's comments, thoughts, questions, or critique here. Uh, as I said earlier, I think it makes things fit together and flow. It's not as tortured of a reading to me. And again, it shows the repetition of themes mm -hmm. even more mm -hmm. starkly. So are we just going to do Christmas through the whole Bible? <laughs> I get a lot more out of it that way than when I do it on my own. <laughs> but, you know, especially with Romans 9, if I haven't just read Chrysostom, I come back to it and I still read it like a Calvinist. And I think, how did John Chrysostom get something else out of this again? That's funny. That's funny. And then, you know, I have to read Chrysostom We get programmed again. and it's hard to reprogram. Right. Really hard to reprogram. Well, I hate to say this, but I'm really tired. So yep. you should probably end the recording. Yeah, I'll stop sharing and end the recording there.